How's it going, everybody? Welcome back to the Locked On Marlins podcast. Hope you all enjoyed the last episode, which was a prospect preview of Edward Cabrera and Jesus Sanchez. Today's episode and tomorrow's episode, two-parter, is going to be on players that are not yet on the Marlins team or organization. It's going to be two MLB draft episodes. First episode today will be mostly just focused on the number three pick, in the draft, which is the Marlins' first selection, and who they should go with there. Of course, there's a good bit of debate as to who the Marlins should take, and a lot of it is predicated on who will be available, because obviously the top two prospects for me, and it seems like for most of the industry, agree that it's Austin Martin and Spencer Torkelson. Those two are most likely to go one and two, and I'll start with them just in case you never know if the Marlins will have a chance to take one of them. But more specifically, I'll focus on Austin Martin because I think he will be the guy who goes number one. I had a question given to me today, which was in a perfect fairy tale world, who would you take if they were both on the board, Austin Martin or Spencer Torkelson? Had the chance to see Torkelson this past summer for a couple games in Chatham, and he was very impressive out there. Each at-bat, you could just see the fear he instills in the pitcher in the opposing teams, and then you always, of course, can see that in his numbers reflected by the amount of times he walks. But when you see him play in person and then you see how careful pitchers are with him, knowing that if they make one mistake, it's likely going to be put over the wall, that is the amazing thing to watch. And that's the fact that he has such good bat control. He is so mature at the plate with his pitch selection that pitchers know they're not going to really be able to get him to chase. They got to be really careful with him. And it was really impressive to watch Spencer Torkelson play. That being said, Austin Martin's hit tool may be unparalleled in the class rivaled by only Nick Gonzalez. Torkelson does have a plus hit tool. Don't get me wrong. But he gives up a little bit of that average for the power, of course. Austin Martin, when it comes to hit tool, is about as good as it gets. And the fact that he has hit well over 300 every season in the SEC for Vanderbilt is just a testament to how mature his approach is at the plate as well. The reason why I would take Austin Martin over Torkelson is just because of how athletic he is, right? He plays shortstop right now. He has a good chance to stay there with an above average arm and great athleticism, but let's say he doesn't. He could still play second base. He can, of course, play the hot corner, and there are many scouts that believe he has the athleticism and arm strength to be able to play the outfield, even center field, with his above average speed. So for Austin Martin, you're looking at an elite hit tool at a premium position that just seems too valuable to pass up on, no matter how good Torkelson is, just because with Torkelson, you're looking at best case scenario. This is best, best, best case scenario. He is a corner outfielder. I don't even think he will play a corner outfield position at the highest level. He will most likely be anchored to first base, which doesn't mean he's worthless. He has a phenomenal bat that will carry him all the way through, but there's just a lot more pressure on the bat of Torkelson when you consider the fact that he will be anchored to first base as a right-handed hitter. With Austin Martin, even if that hit tool, which is still so impressive, the fact that he hit 338 as a freshman in the SEC, then 392 last season, and then was off to a great start this year, hitting 377. 
a little bit of the concern with him was will he be able to hit for at least average power because he only hit one home run in his freshman year. But then sophomore year, put those concerns to bed a little bit, slugging 10 home runs. And then this year, through just 16 games, had three bombs to start the season. So it seemed like he was able to tap into that power a little bit more. He's still, at at best, going to be an average raw power type of guy at the next level. But that's not the concern for Austin Martin. Like I said, there's less pressure on the bat when you consider the fact that he can play shortstop, second base, third base, or center field. He will probably be above average at any of those positions. We'll have to wait and see on shortstop. He has above average speed, a solid base stealer, stole over 40 bags in just two and a quarter seasons. So pretty impressive there with the SEC catchers being a lot better at gunning down runners. And of course, like I said, the hitting tool is off the charts. Rivals maybe only Nick Gonzalez, but I do think given the competition, the consistent competition, he has the best hit tool in the class. So Austin Martin would be the obvious choice. But if the draft was today, I would put my money on Austin Martin being the guy who goes first. That just seems to be what I'm hearing. And it seems to be the most logical pick for a Tigers team that needs players at premium positions. Though Spencer Torkelson might be the safest choice in this entire draft, I think Austin Martin is not far off and at a much more valuable position. That would mean that Spencer Torkelson will probably go second. That's just because of, like I said before, how incredible he is of a power and average threat, how much fear he instills in other teams, and how great he is at not missing the maybe one pitch he gets to hit per at-bat or even per couple at-bats. If he doesn't get the pitch, he happily takes the walk and is very patient up there too, which is impressive for a young hitter to not get too anxious and want to do too much. So that is something that translates well to pro ball. The only thing that might give him a chance to fall to the Marlins is the fact that there are some rumors that the Orioles do want to take an arm at two. The Orioles do seem to always like taking arms with their high picks, but this year might be an exception just because of the fact that Spencer Torkelson is such a darn good hitter. If the Orioles do decide to take an arm, I would believe it's Asa Lacey over Emerson Hancock right now, just because of the fact that Asa Lacey was so good to start the year and Hancock floundered a little bit against some better competition and even some mediocre competition did not look his best. It seems like it would just be the safer pick if you're going to reach it too to take the big left-handed pitcher that has a more complete arsenal than Emerson Hancock. That would be the most likely scenario of who goes second. I still think it's Torque, but if they do not take Torque, Asa Lacey would make the most sense. That would leave the Marlins, hypothetically speaking here, if it goes Austin, Martin, and Torque. I'll still talk about all of them and how they fit in with the Marlins, but for the most likely scenario, we'll start like this. Austin Martin goes one, Spencer Torkelson will go two, and that leaves the Marlins with the choice of Asa Lacey, Nick Gonzalez, and Emerson Hancock is the most likely three unless somebody shoots up the board. One guy that has been shooting up the board is Zach Veen, a prep bat out of Florida who is committed to the Gators, but will likely go in the top 10. He is inching his way even into potentially the top five. But for now, it seems to make the most sense for the Marlins to take a college armor bat. So that's where I'm going to stick for now. So that would leave the Marlins to decide, like I said, between Asa Lacey, Nick Gonzalez, Emerson Hancock. Right now, to start, I would say 
I'm taking Asa Lacey. The reason why is he is more advanced, in my opinion, than Emerson Hancock, and he has shown more of a track record of dominance. That is being through his freshman year to now, even through Team USA, and off to he was off to a great start this season before it was shut down. So Lacey showed even more this year. He's a 6'4", 220-pound lefty with a really good arsenal. So I'm going to talk about Lacey, go into him, tell you why I think he is the best bet at number three, and then I'll talk about the two other guys and why they're worth consideration. But this is why Lacey gets the edge right now. He was a big prospect since high school. And not that Hancock wasn't, but Hancock was a two-way player that had not focused as much on pitching, and that's why he struggled his freshman year at Georgia. Lacey was good right out of the gate, and he has just shown more polish as he's thrown more innings in the college ranks. So his arsenal, it's a fastball that sits around the mid-90s, can top at 97. It's a three-quarter arm angle. He hides the ball really well. So if you're a lefty, you're going to have a ton of trouble, and he is still effective against righties as well. He has a slider and curveball that tend to blend together. The slider is more in the low 80s to mid 80s. The curveball is in the 70s, a little bit more of a slow looper. But then he has the changeup, which is probably his best pitch. And I love a hard-throwing lefty with a good changeup because that means he will be more effective against right-handed hitters. That's the big concern with a lot of left-handed pitchers. Can they get the righties out too if they're a starter? And that is typically what contributes to the bullpen risk of some of these southpaws when they come up as starters. To me, Lacey does not have much bullpen risk because of the fact that he can throw four pitches, three and a half, I'd say, is the curveball and slider blend together, but four pitches for a strike. And the fact that he can work off that changeup with a mid-90s fastball from a three-quarter arm slot. That seems to make him the safest bet right now. The fact that he has dominated for three years, or I guess two and a quarter with the start of this year and was great at Team USA. He's got the pedigree. He was good in high school. His million-dollar price tag is what scared people away in high school. He wanted to go to college, and it seems like it's a decision that has paid off for him. His college career, he's gone 14-5 and with a 2.07 ERA in 152 innings. He has struck out 224. Here's the one issue I would say with Asa Lacey is the command. And typically in history, big college pitchers with a lack of command do not have the best track record. But Lacey is also a lot more advanced than your typical college arm that is coming out and also has a lot more to his arsenal. It's just the fact that he does not quite command some of those secondary pitches as well. Even looking at his wildly successful 2019 season, he did not have a single outing without giving up a free pass. That's something that you would love to see improve in his college career, an 11 walk rate, 11% walk rate, which is not encouraging, and a walk rate that went even higher in 2019 in conference play to 13.5%. Those are the only, or I would say that is the only concern right now with Asa Lacey, that and the fact that his mechanics are sound, but it is a little bit of an effort pitch for him, meaning that when he throws that fastball in the mid-90s, it's not one of those effortless deliveries where you can say there's room for more. It definitely looks like he is probably maxed out at 92 
93 to 95 topping at 97 there need, doesn't need to be much more for him there as a starting pitcher anyways it's just a little bit of that injury risk when you have a max effort pitcher that is a little bit of a concern but that can't steer you away from a guy who doesn't really have much injury history so with Asa Lacy the only real concern is the command like I said he still even with that lack of command at times in 2019 had the third best opponent batting average at 162 and the track record speaks for itself he's able to pitch against high level competition and still be effective even if his command is off and if his control is off there's always going to be a little bit of volatility with any high velocity big left-handed pitcher that has a little bit of command issues so you are going to be taking a little bit more of a risk than maybe a Nick Gonzalez who I'll talk about after the break so it really depends to what on what kind of decision the Marlins want to make here right do they want the highest ceiling guy or do they want an almost can't miss prospect with Nick Gonzalez on the other side of the break I'm going to tell you why Nick Gonzalez other than Austin Martin and Torkelson is the third safest pick in this draft. And then I'll tell you why Emerson Hancock might not be the option for the Marlins at number three. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that Locked On Marlins is a great way for your local business to reach passionate Marlins fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not any podcast listener, a locked-on podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with Miami Marlins fans in a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On Marlins podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com backslash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve locked on advertising success once again text the word advertising to 33777 or visit lockedonpodcast.com backslash advertising we look forward to hearing from you okay so i told you why asa lacy makes the most sense and probably is the right pick for the marlins assuming that torkelson and both austin martin are off the board of course if one of those two are on the board, you take them. Like I said, Martin or Torkelson are the top two options. And my big board, as that was one of the questions, would go as follows before I get into the final two. It would be number one, Austin Martin, two, Torkelson, three, Asa Lacey, four, Nick Gonzalez, and five, Emerson Hancock. So I'll talk about number four in Nick Gonzalez. I had the chance to watch this guy play day in and day out in the Cape this past summer in 2019 and he went on to win cape week player of the year which was incredibly important for his draft stock because he was the reigning batting champion in the ncaa coming into that summer but people were still discounting him to a degree even though he hit 432 because of the fact that he played at new mexico state which is the WAC Conference, WAC, and is not the best competition by any means in college baseball. And they also play at a nice little altitude there where the ball carries. So you look at this 5'10", 190-pound-ish right-handed hitter, and a lot of people wanted to take his numbers with a grain of salt. I don't blame them. I was very eager to see what Nick Gonzalez could do in the Cape as well. 
Before I get into those numbers, though, a lot of people have been tweeting at me over the last few weeks and stuff when I threw out the name Nick Gonzalez, and they say, oh, he doesn't play the competition, I'm going to stay away from that guy. And I understand not everybody sees the Cape numbers, they're not that accessible and stuff like that, but when you look at his numbers, I'll take you through all of them, it should put the competition concern to rest. Let me take you through his Cape numbers, 351 batting average, 451 on base percentage, and a 630 slugging percentage. I know college stats are very inflated, so we become a little bit numb to impressive stat stat lines and slash lines, but that is really rare, almost unprecedented in the Cape League nowadays, especially with a wood bat against some of the best pitchers in the country. He also slugged seven home runs and drove in 33. Again, to contextualize that a little bit, the league leader in home runs had nine and nobody hit for the average that he had except for one guy, Zach Deloach, who I'll actually talk about tomorrow. So he was two points away from being the batting champion in the Cape as well, and he produced power-wise. So he really put to bed all of those types of hesitations that people had, right? He only hits for power because of the altitude. Nope, he hit with a wood bat and was top five in the league in home runs. The average has to be taken with a grain of salt because of his competition. Nope, he puts that to rest by hitting 351 in the Cape, second best batting average. And then let me tell you again, to put it in context, how many categories he led the league in. So he led the league in hits, total bases, doubles, triples, of course, extra base hits, runs, on base percentage, slugging percentage, OPS, and stolen base percentage. He was the top five in home runs, runs batted in, and walks. As mostly a leadoff hitter. That is just unbelievable when it comes to putting up numbers. Of course, the issue with him a little bit is still, can he produce against high competition frequently? I think that he answered that question with what he did in the Cape. The other issue is he's kind of anchored to second base. If he had the ability or even a glimpse of hope to play shortstop, his draft stock would probably be close to Austin Martin's, not quite there, but he would probably be a lot more of a shoe-in for number three for the Marlins. But he seems to be pretty anchored to second base because of his lack of arm strength, a pretty average arm at best, and that's not really going to work for him at shortstop. He didn't play shortstop at all in the Cape, and that was because of the fact that the Kettleers had several solid shortstops, and he just did not have the arm strength, the present arm strength, to consistently play there. That being said, still a very good defensive second baseman, still has above average athleticism, decent speed, a very smart base runner, and a lot of the comps that I've seen have been to Keston Hira, who is obviously was a perennial top prospect in baseball for the Brewers and had a great debut this past year in the major leagues. If that is what happens with him, that would be an incredible outcome. When you look at Keston, Gonzalez is considered to be better defensively than Keston was at the time of the draft, and he is considered to be more athletic by Baseball America, MLB Pipeline, and just about anybody who has compared the two and done write-ups on both of them. Well, Keston still went ninth in the MLB draft back when he was taken, and with Gonzalez having less of those concerns and just about the same hit tool and power potential, you have to assume that Gonzalez might be even safer of a pick than Hira. So when you think about that, that obviously has to be a factor. Keston Hira didn't even play in the Cape League, so that's another thing too. He played at UC Irvine, I believe, and 
put up incredible numbers there. That's obviously better competition than New Mexico State, but still, that could be one of the questions with him too, yet teams liked what they saw, and they went with a guy who was 5'11 and 190 pounds, just like Nick Gonzalez, and just went with his ability to hit the ball. That was it, right? He had a good hit tool and could hit for power, and teams, the Brewers specifically, bet on that, and it worked out for them. Not saying that means it's exactly going to work out for Nick Gonzalez, but he is that combination of a small guy with a lot of back control and hits for more power than you would expect. So that's always a safe bet, right? People say Nick Madrigal might not have been the best pick ever, although he still has time to figure it out. Madrigal isn't comparable to Nick Gonzalez because of the fact that Gonzalez can already hit for way more power than Nick Madrigal. While Gonzalez may strike out a little bit more, strikeouts are not a problem for him. He's patient, he works the count, and he is a tough guy to strike out. I think for the Marlins, it comes down to this, right? Asa Lacy is the higher end, higher ceiling option for the Marlins, but Nick Gonzalez is the higher floor option, meaning Nick Gonzalez is the safest pick that the Marlins could make at number three, assuming Torkelson and Martin are off the board. Another factor, though, is whether the Marlins are just going to go with the best player available approach or if they're going to start considering the state of their farm system and what their weaknesses are. Typically, a team in a rebuild is going to go with the best player available, and I know that's what the team is going to say no matter what, but of course, they are going to factor that in no matter how you spin it. This is just speculatory, but if Eisen Diaz continues to struggle, do the Marlins consider taking a second baseman that can quickly climb through the system like Nick Gonzalez because... Right now, the Marlins don't really have any second baseman specifically in the system. And when you look at Jazz Chisholm, he's sticking to shortstop. The only other guy that in the next couple years could ascend to the big leagues and end up making an impact at second base is Jose Devers. But Devers is a player that I want to see stick at shortstop too because that's where his value is as a defender with a great arm and the potential to be a plus defender at shortstop. Devers aside, the Marlins are pretty scarce when you look at the top prospects in terms of high-end middle infield or third base type of prospects. 1 through 10, the only middle infielders are Jose Devers and Jazz Chisholm. Chisholm's obviously sticking to shortstop, like I said. Jose Devers still weighs away from being in the major leagues, and if he does even make it, but he's not going to have the ceiling of a guy like Nick Gonzalez, at least the expected ceiling of a guy like Nick Gonzalez. As you go further, Naz Nunez is the next highest middle infielder, and he's 15th on MLB Pipeline's top list, and he's still so far from being Major League ready. Same story for Jose Salas. So when you're looking at the top prospects for the Marlins, they do not have any high-end infield prospects that, other than first base, high-end infield prospects that can make an impact in the next two years other than maybe Jose Devers if Eisen Diaz doesn't pan out. So you're not giving yourself much margin for error right now with infield bats. That being said, I said earlier in the podcast how many good college bats there are in this draft. So the Marlins could address that issue later in the compensation rounds or the second or third rounds, which I'll talk about in tomorrow's episode. Still, with the Marlins having so many high ceiling pitchers in the system and even two really impressive southpaws with Braxton Garrett and Trevor Rogers, 
Does that sway you? Is that enough to sway you if you're torn or even if you're leaning towards Ace LAC because he has the higher ceiling? Does that sway you to the higher floor type of bat like Nick Gonzalez, whose hit tool is going to send him through the system pretty quickly? That's the interesting thing that the Marlins will have to debate and figure out. And that's going to be an an interesting development because I think that's the most likely decision the Marlins are going to have to make between Asa Lacey and Nick Gonzalez. Real quick, I'll talk about Emerson Hancock because I do feel like I'm sliding him a little bit. He still has a chance to be selected by the Marlins if they want to take somebody that has a very high ceiling. But it goes back to the conversation we just had, right? Asa Lacey has a little bit more risk than Nick Gonzalez. Emerson Hancock has way more risk than both of them. Emerson Hancock has great stuff, but you're taking a right-hander here with mid-90s to upper-90s he can reach with the fastball. Like I said earlier, a guy that was a two-way player through high school, did not really focus on being a pitcher only till college, struggled mightily in his freshman year with Georgia, then was fantastic last year, and then started to really put it together at the end of the season last year. Came into this year very, very highly followed and highly anticipated, and he struggled a little bit in his first five starts. He got knocked around at Richmond, six earned runs and nine hits, and then got knocked around at Georgia Tech, four earned runs and eight hits. From what the reports I've seen and from players I've talked to that have actually faced him, the scouting reports are a little bit easy to put together on him, meaning that he is a little bit predictable with his pitch patterns. That's not really a concern for me. He's a young pitcher that will learn as he gets into pro ball. The other thing that scouts have said and players that have faced him is that he does lean on the fastball a lot against lower level competition. It's a good fastball with a lot of velocity, but I've seen scouts say it has a little bit of life from what I've seen, from what I've heard from some others, that it can get a little bit flat sometimes. And when you sit on that fastball, it's not enough for him to be able to mow down high-end teams. That's why you saw him get knocked around a little bit by some better teams. And the other thing is the off-speed pitches, right? He has a few different pitches he likes to throw. I mentioned the fastball in the mid-90s. He has a slider that he can manipulate the break with. So it's a slider that can turn into a cutter depending on how he wants to use it, which is a pretty cool pitch for him to be able to use. He has the slider with more break, and then he'll throw it as a cutter that's a little bit harder if he wants to bust a left-hander in. Usually he'll use a slider that's more sweeping versus a right-hander. The changeup he does not use much at all because he hasn't needed to use it, but it's a changeup that'll fade to lefties that he rarely ever uses on righties. So, His big issue is the fact that he does not have a refined command of his secondary pitches, and when he leans on the fastball, teams are able to knock him around a little bit. The fastball, just any pitcher, once you get to a higher level, cannot just lean on his fastball. So if he's able to work on that secondary stuff, he could be really good. I mean, 2019 overall, he was still great. 8-3, a 199 ERA, but 90 and a third innings struck out 97. That's not bad, but at the college level for a guy with his stuff, you'd like to see it be a little bit better with the strikeout numbers. A 185 opponent batting average, though, very encouraging. The lack of command with his secondary pitches, to me, makes him too risky right now to take at three if I'm the Marlins, though if the Marlins were a little bit earlier in the rebuild, I'd be more willing to take a volatile, high-risk, high-reward player like Emerson Hancock. But with his struggles to start the season, some of the lack of command with the secondary, and it just seems like he has a little bit of maturing to do as a pitcher, 
I think the Marlins at this point in the rebuild need to go with the safer option like Asa Lacy or an even safer, safer option like Nick Gonzalez. The most likely scenario is going to be the Marlins deciding between those two, but you never know what can happen in a couple months. My gun to my head, I say take Asa Lacy, but as things develop in the next couple months and if the Marlins seem like they don't have infield bats and there's not guys that they think are good enough to address it in the later rounds, that might be a case for Nick Gonzalez, who I do think has the makeup, has all the intangibles, and will crush the team interviews with Derek Jeter. He has the makeup. He was a walk-on in New Mexico State. This is a guy that works very hard. I'm not saying Asa Lacy doesn't work very hard because I love his makeup too. He is a passionate guy on the mound. He will probably win over the Marlins as well. They're going to have a tough decision to make if Torkelson and Martin go off the board one and two. So that's going to be the interesting development to see how things go. And the team workouts are going to play a big factor in that and whether Nick Gonzalez can put on a bit of a show in batting practice or Lacy can show that he has continued to refine that secondary command. But don't count out Emerson Hancock as a long shot. If he can show that he has worked on those secondaries, he can end up sliding his way in there as well. So the Marlins have a tough decision to make. I will continue to be following this closely and continue to follow up with what the Marlins are considering and what I think as time moves on and we get closer to this draft. Tune in tomorrow because I'm going to give you a lot of bats and a couple arms that the Marlins should consider at the middle and late day one and all of day two. Excited to get some of those names out to you guys. It should be a fun episode tomorrow. Please let me know if I answered all your questions. I'm happy to answer more questions on what I think at the number three pick and what the Marlins could end up doing. As always, thank you for listening. I will talk to you all for some more draft coverage tomorrow.